You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Hi everyone, Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast. Dare I say how weird that the AFL grand final might be being played in Brisbane because of COVID, but the two teams playing are Victorian. Enough sport, now to the important stuff, politics. This morning we're going to find out more about the New Citizens Report inquiry into the health of the Barker, Darling River and Menindee Lakes. We follow with a chat with Shirley Winton from IPAN and Spirit of Eureka about the Federal Defence Legislation Amendment Enhancement of Defence Force Response to Emergency Build 2020. Over the Wall continues its investigation of the abhorrent cashless welfare debit card. Kevin ploughs through the week with satire. And we finish with a chat with Don Sutherland reporting on the living incomes for everyone's response to the budget. Hi, my name's Kath. 3CR has been in my life for decades. Each week I listen to my favourite programs. However, it's in a time of crisis that I really appreciate how important 3CR is. Often, this is when thousands of people are on the streets pushing for change. In this time of COVID, no one is on the streets. 3CR is more important than ever, keeping all our communities connected and informed. 3CR is a remedy for social isolation in this time of physical distancing. Good on you, 3CR. Last year, the mass death events of fish in the Barker-Darling River, the most significant river system in Australia, spanning down Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, alerted those who don't live along its shores that the corporate use of its waters and government-broken policies was endangering the very lifeblood of the nation, its rivers. Last week, the Australian People's Tribunal, a voluntary organisation of lawyers and First Nation elders and other First Nations people, launched their report, Citizens' Inquiry into the Health of the Barker-Darling River and Menindee Lakes. The report is based on... The tribunal's evidence gathered over a two-week period in March 2019 that brings the voices of those affected by the collapse of the river system to the fore. First, we will hear from Quinton Grafton, who was asked to open the launch, followed by some of those who worked to get the report finished. Quinton Grafton is from the ANU and works in the field of water justice. What do you see as should ring alarm bells in regards to the recent federal budget, belly who about dams and water infrastructure, another ecological disaster dressed up as economic necessity. My name's Quentin. I've been working on the uh, on the Murray Darling Basin and water issues for for a, a good number of years now, 
Uh, and I'm talking to you from Ngunnawal-Nambri country, which is uh, the ACT, Australian Capital Territory, and a little bit beyond that. And uh, there's some uh, sacred rivers here as well. Uh, so the Malonglo and, uh, and of course, the Murrumbidgee. And uh, I want to recognize the, uh, the nations, uh, the Ngunnawal Nation and Nambri Nation. I want to recognize that they never ceded their lands, their country, and these rivers and streams that, uh, that we enjoy here. And that I also want to acknowledge their uh, elders, their past, present, and emerging. So that acknowledgement, I think, is a beginning that all of us need to start with in the context of understanding justice from an Australian context. Uh, you know, Australia was colonized, uh, a, a country was taken, and that country was not just land, uh, it was also the waters. And uh, if that was just an historical event, that would be bad enough, uh, terrible as it is. But it's not just an historical event. It's happening right now in 2020, of course, in the, in the Barker. But it's not just in the Barker. There are plans afoot, as uh, you were probably aware, but are, are worth highlighting for National Water Infrastructure Grid. There was $2 billion, that's $2,000 million allocated additional to the uh, existing funding to build uh, water infrastructure in, uh, in Australia. And a good part of that will be in the northern part of Australia. So, so what, we, what you've experienced, what we all, I'm in the Murray-Darling Basin, of course, as well, uh, what we've experienced here uh, could be coming uh, soon to northern Australia. And it's, uh, it's uh, another example of if you are, you want to describe a colonization, but it's, 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 I, I think that just takes away the, 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 the notion of what it is. It's, it's a small number of people, often with taxpayers' dollars. So it's your dollars, my dollars. <laughs> so it's not, like it's not like they're doing it you know, <clears throat> with their own dollars. Uh, taxpayers' dollars to support them, to build dams and infrastructure uh, on land that's not theirs, country's not there, and to take water that they shouldn't be extracting without prior and informed consent. So it goes across all sorts of norms, ethics, uh, as well as the United Nations uh, Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. I mean, so... Uh, that is just the, the bigger story that, that goes beyond the Barker, and, uh, and it's worth highlighting that this is a struggle that will continue not only in, for the Barkanji and, and for all the peoples in, in the basin, but it's, it's a struggle all of us in Australia are going to have to face. So, so why was I invited? I'm not sure, but I, I'm, I'm honoured to be invited and privileged to be here. I convene a water justice hub that actually began last year, but funding didn't begin until the 1st of July and we formally launched on the 28th of September. And in that launch, uh, we had a whole range of speakers from different parts of the world, uh, most of them from, from Australia. We highlighted a number of things. One of them was that the sustainable development goals, which I think are very relevant to the report you have here, uh, they're not going to be delivered on a global scale and they're not going to be delivered, I'm going to repeat myself, they're not going to be delivered here, right here in Australia. Okay, so, so, so there are thousands of Australians that don't have access to, to, to potable drinking water. Okay, that, that we would uh, consider to be acceptable. There are uh, an untold number of Australians who have suffered in all sorts of ways in the context of how water is being used. That means we won't deliver on that. Um, and, and so the water justice up, we highlight three forms of injustice. There are many forms of injustice, of course, but, but uh, what we are talking about, uh, it's a, and it's a, nothing original to us, but I think it's a, it's a framework to use when we talk about justice. 
So the first thing is basic justice. And that basically means uh, that our basic needs are met. So that we have uh, the, 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 the water for sanitation, we have the water for drinking, the water for washing, all those sorts of things have an acceptable quality uh, and for all, you know, all the time. Now, um, many Australians have that, but there are uh, thousands of Australians who don't. So we haven't delivered basic water justice right here, right now in 2020 in Australia. The second type of injustice that we would focus in on is distributive justice. So that's basically a fair share for all. And this report documents in a very real way that uh, there clearly is not a fair share for all. Uh, some people are getting far, far more than their fair share. And because they're getting far more, it means some people, some communities are getting very little indeed, if any. Uh, if any if any water so we don't have distributive uh, justice uh, uh, in all sorts of places in australia and then the third aspect of justice uh, is procedural justice and so procedural justice is, is about how decisions are made so do do the people who are affected by those decisions do they have a respected voice do they have a seat around the table when those decisions are made and uh, as you well know and as this report well documents that is certainly not the case the water sharing plans is well documented in here, of course, and it's documented in other literature, not just in these testimonies. You know, the water sharing plan for the Barwon Darling in 2012, okay, that just was put in just before the basin plan. The, the changes there were clearly was, was not agreed to by the people uh, throughout uh, the, uh, the Northern Basin. And so um, uh, the, the catalog goes on and on and I'll leave you and the authors to talk it through, but, but I wanna highlight a couple of things before I close. One is that there's a bunch of evidence in the scientific literature, peer reviewed academic literature that backs up many of these findings. So these are findings based on your work, but it's also supported uh, in terms of the, the published literature. So it's worth highlighting that. The second thing I wanna to, to perhaps close with is just to highlight that, that um, you know, I, I agree <laughs> with, uh, with many of the findings and most of the recommendations, so, um, uh, and certainly the, the most important ones. So, so, so here's see me on the outside, had, had nothing to do with this, nothing to do with the report, doing my own work in my own way, and, and to be connected here is, as I said, a real privilege, and, and I, would, uh, I would support, not all I have to say, um, but that's for another time, but the dialogue, but many of the findings and, and recommendations, and I think there's an outstanding piece of work, and the, my view, my closing statement is the only way, and I'm, I'm, telling the, I'm telling the people who invented this, but the only way we're going to change what's happening in terms of water injustice in Australia is if we change the hearts and minds of the Australian people. And so they know what's going on, because I can tell you this, the people who are making these decisions, they're not going to be influenced by your report. That's my opinion. Uh, I think they will, they will be influenced by the, uh, if, if people, all Australians come together and say, this is not acceptable. We must change it. That's the only way we're going to bring about change. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. I'm calling in from Palawa country, um, acknowledgement to elders past, present um, and emerging. Um, I just wanted to share with you some insights um, uh, that I had from uh, um, this report. Um, for me, I think one of the, the great strengths of this report is that it's a narrative inquiry. It um, collected evidence, um, uh, so it's, it's very much an evidence-based inquiry, but it's one with a really light touch in that the facts themselves 
became evident through the shared and lived experience of those directly affected. So um, it's the participants' voice that really you can hear through, uh, through this report. So we began our journey back in October of 2018 um, with uh, the Australian People's Tribunal for Community and Nature's Rights convening in Brisbane, in the um, Brisbane Supreme Court, where we heard expert um, witness um, evidence um, about the state of the, um, the Barker Darling River and Menindee Lakes. Um, but the panel concluded really that um, we had really had to go and see for ourselves um, and hear from those communities that are directly, uh, were directly affected. Um, so we took to the road from Mildura to Walgett uh, along uh, the length of the river. What did, did we see? Um, from my perspective, I saw a mighty iconic river that was once a trade route and paddle steamer highway, uh, reduced to disconnected, uh, rancid algae pools of water, undrinkable water tra trapped between town weirs. I saw the Barka, central to the Barkindji nation creation stories and central to cultural life and cultural well-being, um, uh, completely decimated. Um, I also saw a living ecosystem, a river as, a, as an ecosystem, uh, which is home to internationally listed wetlands and a di diverse ecological uh, communities of flora and fauna that were struggling to survive. Um, I also witnessed whole river communities cut off from a once reliable water source and surviving on donated bottled water. So what were um, the community's concerns? What, what is it that we heard from the community as, as being their highlighted concerns? Uh, what, a major concern for the community was an over extraction of too much water um, at the top end of the river. Um, uh, uh, other concerns were the insidious practice of uh, floodplain harvesting um, that's um, endorsed uh, by government. Um, some of the participants talked of alleged um, mismanagement and uh, water theft um, and a government with no um, appetite for following those um, uh, particular issues up through uh, the criminal law system. Um, we also heard of um, the manipulation, if not the corruption of the negotiation uh, process for a fair water sharing plan. Uh, we heard of um, something that I hadn't appreciated until um, I heard from the participants um, about the commodification of our water. Our whole natural resource, our water resource sold on um, the stock exchange. Um, um, we also heard about water trading schemes that were substantially benefiting some of the industrial scale farmers uh, along the river at the expense of, of family farms. Um, we heard of the abject failure to consult with First Nations communities, and I think this is, is a key um, uh, finding in the report and the failure to allocate uh, cultural flow in the um, 
uh, in the apportioning of, of uh, flows on, in the river. Uh, we also heard of water accounting practices that were unable to account for what we could only describe as missing water from uh, the official uh, statistics, government statistics. So what does all this mean? It's, it's um, uh, at the end of the day, we really um, could, could draw no other conclusion other than the fact that the current state of affairs is drastically inadequate. Um, and that what, what we need is a community-led solutions-based approach. Um, for the communities, they put it as simply as allowing the river to, to flow. Uh, but some of the other solutions, um, specific solutions that were forwarded was um, to um, reduce the extraction at the top end of the river, to look at, into how that might um, be yeah, regulated and enforced, to use a science-based approach. The community were asking for a science-based approach to manage our, our river's health. Um, as well as that, to enforce the laws that are already there. The community know that there are, are laws in place, um, but uh, that they're being averted. Um, some of the uh, community participants were in fact calling for a Royal Commission um, into alleged water theft, corruption and mismanagement. Um, also um, changes to our governance structures um, and the management, how we go about managing our river um, and to introduce transparent uh, systems for uh, water uh, accounting um, and for information management and sharing of that info, public sharing of that information. Um, the communities were asking for help to rebuild. Um, and I, I would endorse um, Quentin's um, uh, proposal too, and the community were asking for it too, is to, is a hearts and minds campaign and an education of all Australians about the importance of um, this very important uh, river system. Um, so I would join uh, with Gil and Michelle in just thanking the entire team that, that um, uh, brought about um, the making of this report, everyone from um, the facilitating of, of the trip, from those recording um, and the fantastic job of, of editing um, uh, this report at, at, at the end, what, what was a monumental effort. Um, and I just want to, to finally express my um, note of gratitude uh, to those incredible resilient communities and First Nations people who um, have withstood so, so much um, at this stage and continue to uh, withstand hardship uh, to live in their community and their sense of place along those river communities um, and who came forward to help the tribunal to uh, give voice to um, a river system that uh, is on its knees. Um, um, I want to give recognition to the, the lands here I'm on at the moment which is the Turrible. Uh, they've given me the privilege and also uh, allowed and given me the welcome to to live on, on their country. My traditional country is, is the Bindle people from the Townsville, uh, Mount Elliot, down to the Burdekin River in, in Queensland. Um, 
I want to thank the, the panel members uh, in particular um, and uh, the people that have been on this journey. I think one of the things that I got out of the um, out of this tribunal was um, the, the people's narrative, which was really important, but the people's voice, people had a voice and they felt like they needed to exercise that voice around the trauma. Um, and they were able to do the storytelling in a, in a very um, precise way. And, uh, and those voices gave strength and, and spoke for the river, which can't speak for itself. Um, and uh, the waterways and, and, and the, the animals and the plants and, and indigenous people uh, were very anguished. And I watched the anxiety and the anguish through a lot of the processes. And I think for me, um, seeing that anguish and, and anxiety uh, creep in through mental health uh, and well-being within the general um, society and watching the um, the different videos and so forth on it, uh, for me, was very stressful. I, I think we lose, um, when we lose the environment, the first thing that we start to lose is, is people's um, uh, anxiety and hope for whether it's going to recover. Uh, and, and, you're, and there's right in, in so many ways is that there are so many threats uh, through the environment, but uh, people uh, feel comfortable that it'll come back eventually if allowed and given the opportunity. But the, the, the thing that uh, I guess worries me so much uh, around the way uh, our natural environment has been destroyed through water theft, uh, corporate greed, the whole shooting match, it can be duplicated elsewhere across Australia. Um, even in Queensland, they're talking about the duplication of dams um, and that in itself has very destructive nature about it. So, uh, and the duplication of dams um, are not, not a healthy way of actually looking at how we um, exercise and look after water and, and uh, share uh, the current system. Um, my concern also was around the level of suicide and uh, self-harm as a part of this process. We don't see the real impact this is having on the community from a very, very blunt end. Um, and we need to really understand that and, and let the community know in a broader context that not only is it environmental, it's, it has a human impact. And that human impact is, can be quite um, horrific. And the traumas associated with it, as I watched people, go through the, the anxiety um, of not only their own destruction as families, but also having to move away and, and trying to have an existence, but, you know, loving the place that they're on. They love the country. They love the place they live. It doesn't matter whether you're black or white or indifferent. Uh, the reality is, is people love where they are and they want to be uh, there without the, the trauma of um, the, the ecocide uh, I get, that we talk about. So I think from my point of view, that, that although everybody else spoke about the narrative around the environmental impact, the water theft, everything that, that built up to towards this, um, my concern is that the, the, the real human impact will, will be long living beyond the next flood when the waters will fill those rivers again. Um, and then government will have, a, a, or governments will say, look, we, we don't have a problem anymore. Uh, the rivers are full, they're flowing. Um, uh, until the next drought comes along, uh, we won't be able to fix it. And uh, they won't see the need to put that into place. And I think uh, a Royal Commission uh, would be important to this because we don't, uh, we've got to put a broader lens 
over the whole landscape, what we are doing as human beings in the landscape. And I hope that um, you know, this, I know um, Quentin said, you know, it's probably not, uh, it's gonna have limited effect, um, but I too believe that we can probably um, push it in a different way and push it in a different direction and provide some structural mechanisms by which we actually send this information out to the community and saying, just because the next flood comes along, it looks green, waters are full, um, that we can't still not put in place mechanisms and triggers so it doesn't happen again. Thanks, Michelle. Thank you so much, Ross. Just fantastic. Um, I am uh, pay my respects to the um, Dungadi people who have not ceded their country to the uh, colonial forces. Um, I would also like to say when I was first engaged with this, this issue, I saw a river flowing backward and I couldn't believe that. And somebody said, well, that happens every day. They turn on the pumps. And I thought that's not right. And you know, when I looked into it, I realized that government policies, state and federal are actually killing Australian people. These are people that I can drive to, like who live in outback New South Wales. It's not overseas, it's not in the Middle East. These are our people who are being killed by government policy, literally. And um, it, it, it really makes you angry. And um, so, you know, we created a website called The Vanishing River, where we just put up some some interviews from people out, out west. When we started, the people said, why talk to us? Nobody listens to us, but they're listening now. And the whole world is listening now. And so thank you for everybody in the west who's speaking up. And I know that Murray Butcher and Brendan Adams and, and Barry Stone and, and all the beautiful people in Western New South Wales and all the language groups out there are watching and they know that people are listening. So we have to keep talking. We have to take this report to the highest place and, and get everybody in Australia to be aware of it. We want to print them, print more and more of them, get them in every school, every library in this country, because this is a problem that's not going to go away. We have to sort it out. And that's just about all I have to say. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, and we have been hearing about the report, Citizens' Inquiry into the Health of the Barker Darling River and Menindee Lakes. You can access the report at tribunal.org.au. There are video testimonies from people who live along the river as well. Now we move to the grim enhancement of Defence Force Response to Emergency Bill 2020 coming out of the federal government. I spoke with Shirley Winton from Spirit of Eureka for a backgrounder on the legislation and some of its more unsavoury aspects. Now, I noticed that the Campaign for International Cooperation and Disarmament have put out um, a release regarding 
the Defence Legislation Amendment Bill, I think people would be surprised at uh, or a bit shocked at uh, some of the elements in this legislation. Do you want to... IPAN has issued a, a statement and also put in a submission and so has Spirit of Eureka. So there have been several organisations that have, um, a week ago, about a, over a week ago, have um, issued statements um, calling on the government to either withdraw the bill or, or to make major amendments to it. So start from the beginning. Um, so the, the Morrison government has introduced um, a new bill, a dangerous new bill to parliament, and it's called Defence Leg- Legislation Amendment, Enhance- Enhancement of Defence Force Response to Emergencies Bill 2020. Now, in this bill is a is 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 a further development or refining of the of of a similar bill or rather of a development of the bill of the Defence Legislation um, Act of uh, 2000 under the Howard government, who introduced uh, made some major changes to the 1903 defence the original defence um, legislation. So under the, the 2000 changes to the original legislation um, would actually um, was for the Sydney Olympics and it was basically to strengthen the use of the military against the so-called terrorism during uh, Sydney Olympics. Um, now that legislation hasn't been revoked and it's basically giving power to, a, um, this was in 2000, giving authority to the, to the Prime Minister and Minister of Defence um, to call out troops um, in um, in the event of um, perceived or expected terrorist attack. So that included uh, that emergencies were not defined, um, but it also included things like, um, you know, um, entering um, um, entering people's homes without warrants. So it was a pretty draconian bill. It was meant to be only for the duration of the Sydney Olympics. However, as everyone predicted, as most people have predicted, it has not been revoked. So it's still on the books. That's the 2000 Defence Legislation Act. In um, About a month ago, or about two months ago, um, the Morrison government has introduced the amendment to this 2000 bill, the original bill. And that's called the uh, Defence Legislation Amendment, Enhancement of Defence Force Response Emergencies Bill 2020. Now, this bill is, if passed, it will give authority to the Defence Minister to declare an emergency and call out Australian Defence Forces and Police. And that includes the foreign troops and police to deal with the undefined emergency. So there's no definition of what an emergency is. So this, um, so basically the original um, bill, the Defence Legislation from 1903 did not include the use of the military, uh, so of foreign troops. The original 1903 um, Act and also even the Howard Government's 2000 Amendment did not include the use of foreign troops in um, to co- the calling out of the foreign troops. So um, this this is a, an addition to the um, to the new um, uh, to the new Defence Amendment Bill. So, um, so they say it allows the deployment of foreign military and police in Australia and grants them immunity from civil and criminal liability under our laws. 
Now, I had the impression that uh, the reason for why Morrison feels uh, um, able to put this forward is under the cover of things like the uh, uh, bushfires and COVID. And COVID-19. COVID yeah, yeah, so yeah. So they're using, they're basically using the cover of COVID-19 and bushfires to, to give really quite, quite extensive powers to the military um, in, um, to use not only against, not only to use in the times of the natural disaster emergencies like bushfires and floods, but it can also be used in industri- against workers taking industrial action. It can be used against protests, um, against climate change, protection of the environment, because the emergencies are not specified. The, the term emergencies and other emergencies are not specified in the bill. And uh, when asked, when the government was asked about the, the why there wasn't any definition, um, they said that they couldn't predict what the emergencies could be. Uh, they falsely accused the MUA of holding the economy, national economy, to ransom over uh, a nor- normal EBA negotiation at Patrick's in Sydney. Uh, and they used exactly the same kind of language about uh, putting the uh, Australia's economy at stake. And this further the, the definition of the of when do you use the, when when this will be used is when there's damage to property. So that is so broad. It would include that in the case of the MUA. It could include that. Well, there's you know the MUA that claimed the MUA, which MUA wasn't doing, but was holding up medicines on the boats. Now that could use that as an as as an excuse to move in the the army to 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 basically to smash the um, the the MUA um, to to smash any sort of um, protest and also uh, to smash strike. Why surely do are they allowing foreign military and police? Is this about the creeping war towards China and the Americans? Well, I think, I mean, this is for the domestic purposes. So, I mean, Australia is already integrated. Australian Defence Forces are already integrated into the American military. So, uh, you know, there's no sort of, there's little separation between the US and the Australian military. Um, This is actually, we've got 2,500 US Marines stationed in Darwin. Now, in the event, you know, for whatever reason, they may decide to bring in the U.S. Marines. They're saying that they could bring U.S. Marines in times of natural disasters, like the um, like the bushfires. But at the same token, you're opening the door to foreign troops being used against protests, against industrial actions. I mean, there's um, there's a quite a quite a strong anti-fracking movement, particularly by the uh, the First Nations people in Northern Territory. But you know, any kind of blockading of um, of fracking um, is can be deemed to be, um, you know, uh, damage to to property. Can be damaged, you know. So so it gives the power to bring in not only Australian soldiers but the foreign soldiers as well. The bill waters down the role of the executive in authorising deployments. Like directions do not need to be published, and and at no time and no timelines given to any of it. Well, that's right. So the, the the original bill has, you know, and that has the um, requires that defence minister, 
um, and the Prime Minister and somebody else has the authority to make the decision. In this bill, in the new amendment, it only requires the Defence Minister to make the decision to call out the truth and to, um, and, and to call a state of emergency. The, the Defence Minister then only needs to consult with the Prime Minister. It's unbelievable. So it's only consulting with the Prime so it's, not, it's only consulting with the Prime Minister, but it doesn't have to, but the Defence Minister does not have to take the um, take on board what the Prime Minister's view is. And I think what, what there's another aspect to it, and some people say it's a bit of, you know, conspiracy theories, but, you know, if you put it in the context of that, you know, the, we're, we're facing three major crises. There's the economic crisis, there's the... Um, there's the uh, climate crisis, and there's also the health crisis. Now, it is, it's inevitable that these crises, which are, as we know from history, books, and from our own experience, that this crisis, the effects and the impact of the crisis are shifted onto ordinary people. So it's the workers who have to pay for the crisis with the unemployment, with austerity measures. So in many ways, there is, it is being, um, there are expectations that there will be resistance to, to the austerity. There will be, there's also a lot of um, upheaval about climate change, about the fact that the government the authorities are not taking any measures to, um, to mitigate climate crisis. There's a lot of anger, particularly amongst young people. So in many ways, there are preparations being made by the state to meet this social upheaval. And what sort of brings another another sort of level to it is that it is rumoured that there will be a um, a um, ministerial shuffle in the Liberal Party, and that Dutton is apparently aiming to be appointed as the Minister for Defence. Now, whether that's true or not, it is rumoured. But you know, it's 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 there is a picture. There are dots that are that are being drawn, and it's. In my view, and in view of um, people in Spirit of Eureka and IPAN as well, it is um, it is a shift to to totalitarianism. It is a shift. It's a step towards um, towards fascism in Australia. It's not fascism, but it, it is a step in that direction. So the state is making preparations. So how likely is it uh, that this uh, bill will go in, uh, be passed without any changes, or actually be thrown back? Okay, there's a lot of uh, a lot of submissions that have been put in, um, particularly well, there's there's community organisations that have put in submissions um, to the government. Um, there's human rights and um, democratic rights and civil liberties. Individuals and organisations are putting in their bill, uh, putting in their submissions. Um, we thought um, it was indicated to us that um, that there would be possibly that there would be uh, public hearings. However, the that seems to be fading because there's been no announcement about a public hearing, and apparently the uh, report um, of the Senate committee will be made, which you know, which will make recommendations will be put to Parliament on 4th or 5th of November. So, um, and the other aspect to it is that from what I can see and what from many of us uh, are looking at is that um, the only voice in Parliament um, opposing this bill or making, you know, very concerned about this bill, particularly the, the uh, draconian 
attack on democratic rights and also to be, being used against workers during industrial action is Zelie Stegart, the independent. Now, the Labor, the Labor opposition are absolutely silent. In fact, Richard Miles has come out and said that, you know, it's a, it's a necessary change that needs to be accepted. So, um, you know, but I think that we need to put that in another, in further context, is that this is happening at a time when, since 2000, that we've had 83 new um, uh, anti-terror legislations. And they're the most extreme um, anti-terror laws, apart from the U.S., in that, from in other in other countries, so then we've got the Asia Asia Amendment Bill that is also brought in last year, I think, um, which gives Asia and intelligence services enormous power to of surveillance. Um, so I think it's we need to sort of put the this Defence Amendment Bill in the context of the overall attacks um, on on our democratic rights. So um, IPAN and Spirit of Eureka, we've put in our submissions um, strongly urging that uh, the um, um, that those particularly those aspects about the definition of of the emergency, the use of U.S. Marines, um, be taken out of the out of this bill, but also though the exemption from um, from our criminal and civil liabilities of police the army and including the, the foreign army, that all these be taken out of the bill. But at the end of the day, it's, at the end of the day, really, it's, it's up to us. You know, our response to, to, um, to these attacks on our democratic rights and the very far-reaching attacks on democratic rights and had enormous consequences on particularly on, industri- on workers' rights and struggles for, against climate, climate change that our response should be that we should not be intimidated by this bill. If this bill is passed and all these laws are there, we should not be intimidated because, you know, the strength does lie in in in, in us, in our own organisations, in us organising and, and defying these, these laws um, and not being intimidated by them. And I think we should hark back again to the experience with Clary O'Shea in 1969 where there were all these all these um, laws and conditions that oppress, suppress the work of, of unions and that were defied by, by, by more than a million people who came out in the streets basically supporting the Clary O'Shea and opposing the penal powers. So I think that that's, where, that's what our response should be. That's, why, that's where we should be organising um, and highlighting, and I think educating the community about what what the preparations, what preparations the state is making to suppress what is what is you know already happening, like in countries like America, is already resistance to the um, to the to austerity and resistance to the climate change, resistance to um, the attacks on workers' rights. Thanks, Shirley. Thanks for giving us a background briefing to this rather horrendous uh, development. I am not in love, but I'm open to persuasion.
When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. But with a lover, I could hold my head back, really loud, really loud. Welcome to 3CR's Over the Wall. And Catherine, would you like to just refresh us on the campaign that you're involved in? I'm involved in the campaign to stop the cashless welfare debit card from expanding, extending for those that are already on it. And the government's new legislation that they want to push through will add another 25,000 people roughly in the Northern Territory, Cape York. And it also makes all of the sites permanent rollout and it lifts the caps on how many people can be on the card. People don't realise that the cashless debit card is nothing to do with Centrelink. It's controlled by Services Australia, which is a different department. Centrelink have nothing to do with it. It's control and profits for big business and stripping away the rights of people on Social Security across the whole country without proper due process, without consultation, without people being able to be represented. Consumer rights protections and the rule of law. Cashless debit card holders have not had any of that and will not have access to any of that. Because a lot of people don't realise that the cashless debit card isn't just about income management. It's about forced income management because it's done without your consent. The removal of your consumer protections under law your privacy rights, your right to social security, breaches your human rights, it breaches the rights of your children. It includes your dependents as well. This is very scary because this is stripping legal protections from Australian citizens, leaving them outside the protections of our laws at the mercy of a private company, Indu. It means that they can share all of your information but they can also share all of the information they receive about your child as well, school attendance, health stuff, without that child's knowledge or consent. This is just overreach. It really is. But in regards to people not being protected under consumer law, Indu is protected against being prosecuted for breaching consumer law because they are in breach of consumer laws by sending people out the cashless debit card in the first place without their consent. They've set the account up in that person's name without their knowledge or consent. And then the government is feeding the 80% into the Indu bank account, not your bank account. This is illegal under our consumer laws, but Indu have been given an exemption. They've got a protection against being prosecuted. But that leaves the recipient of the card with nowhere to turn when Indu fail to pay the rent. And Indu make it very clear in all their terms and conditions they're not responsible for any late fees or defaults that you may incur or any damages that you may incur as a result of them failing to pay your bills or being late with the bills. They're not held accountable in any way if your health declines because Indu cashless debit card, they're privatised entities. It's a very difficult situation. And the other thing which you were mentioning about is the opt-out. Now as the card is being moved towards a permanent measure, what are you seeing 
with the percentages of people trying to opt out and being refused? Oh, it's huge. The amount of people being knocked back is, is huge. One of the greatest excuses for opt-out is, it goes through the questions, which aren't very many, you know, regarding the care of your children, the school attendance of your children, what you do in the community, and are you a risk to the community and your criminal history. And then it will get down to, we've decided that you're at risk of homelessness because you've had too many declines. But it's been Indu who have done the declines. It was Indu who have stopped the the rent cycle and reset the rent and not told you. So your rent has been set back to zero. You go to pay your rent and it declines and it takes four days to get it sorted. By the time you get it sorted, you're another week behind in rent. One lady, she had four rent declines or her rent was cancelled four times in six months. That was Indus doing, not hers. She had to move from one place to another because of a domestic violence situation which Indu were aware of. They promised her they wouldn't use it against her. Got herself a solid, stable place to live. Got a letter from the landlord stating that she's safe, she's not at risk of homelessness, and they deemed her at risk of homelessness and knocked her up out. Said no, because she was at risk of homelessness because of fleeing these domestic violences. Now, she pushed and pushed and pushed, and finally... She was allowed to get off the card. And now in the new bill, the minister is giving herself the power to put people back on it. But that's another thing too. On the bottom of the opt-out forms, it tells people that the accounts are being held open in case that the minister decides to reverse their decision. How can Indu have the right to keep the account open in your name if you've been released from the program? Welfare recipients in the South Australian region of Sejuna East Kimberley and the Goldfields in Western Australia and Bundaberg and Harvey Bay in Queensland soon be permanently forced to use cashless welfare cards. And we've spoken about there's legislation coming up at the moment where Labor Social Services spokesperson Linda Burney said recently regarding the cashless welfare card that the Morrison government always intended to make the card permanent. Quote, The Auditor-General found there was no evidence the card works and the government hasn't even published the review they promised. Auditor-General's report absolutely smashed it, found no evidence that it made any difference, right? No evidence to say that it was working. And, of course, the government don't want to hear that. They've got their fingers in their ears because this is ideological profit-making for shareholders. That's all they can see is the dollar signs. They're not seeing the people or the impacts. They don't want to see it. We've just had the budget and it's just been discussed this week on multiple media sources, including ABC Insiders, that the budget has included quite significant cuts to the Auditor-General's office, cutting the Auditor-General office funding. Wouldn't that actually decrease oversight during a time when we're seeing a lot more involvement with private industry and corporations with government that requires oversight? They will do anything to shut down the truth on anything to do with social welfare because they want everybody to believe that everybody's a drug-addled doll bludger. You know what I mean? When we saw on Insiders this morning, they were talking about the rate of job seeker being predominantly women over 60 is the biggest cohort of unemployed people, followed by... Women between the age of 45 and 49, 
I find that really disturbing considering when you look at the cashless debit card, it impacts single parents and parents and their children predominantly more. It impacts carers of people who are looking after elderly parents or disabled adult or disabled kids, predominantly again women. Not only has this budget revealed no help for women, have an income management card too. So you lose all of your independence, your financial autonomy is being stripped away from women. This is hurting women and children. And that has been documented through the basics card over the last 13 years. This is a racist, sexist policy, right, in that regard, because the scales are tipped with the Northern Territory, 82% Indigenous people will be on the card against 17% of non-Indigenous people. In to do now, I think it was 78% Indigenous people. In Kununurra, it's 98% Indigenous. It was about 60, 40 in the goldfields. And the only place that's different is Hinkla, where it's 86 non-Indigenous. You know what I mean? But everywhere else is predominantly Aboriginal. And that's so cruel. But now it's revealing that it's also predominantly women that are going to be impacted because the women are the carers, the child raisers, yeah, and also more women are disabled than men as well. It impacts at so many different levels. And then you combine it with everything else that this budget's done or not done for women. And the biggest cohort we have now are women over 55 going homeless. They've contributed all their lives and they end up on the street broke on a cashless debit card. That's the bottom line, isn't it? Oh, and stripped of your human rights your consumer rights, your privacy. This is a That's how I see it. Hi, this is Liz Stringer and you're listening to the Mighty 3CR on 855 AM and digital radio, 3cr.org.au. A weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when what excitement. The big day has finally arrived, the last day in October, well, almost. And it's time to cross to the Gabba for the big game with our regular caller, Kevin. And once again, we're privileged to have our expert commentator, Michelle. I thank you, and over here, a sensation. The counting business class team refuses to play unless restrictions on the crowd are lifted. Captain Scuttle, them more less than, a.k.a. Scummo, says the opposition team is destroying the viability of the game, and the game's economy can't survive the pejorative Dan's unnecessary and soul-destroying restrictions. A, a sensation, Michelle. Very interesting, Kevin. The caring business class team captain, Mr. Morlachson, a.k.a. Scummo, says the opposition team is destroying the viability of the game and the game's economy can't survive the pejorative Dan's unnecessary and soul-destroying restrictions. A brilliant summation, Michelle, brilliant. And just when we had a new team, they're making it to the big one, the pejorative Dan Socialists, who insist only five players from each side can be on the ground at the one time, and players are not allowed to cover more than five kilometres in the course of the game. This is another sensation, Michelle. Very interesting, Kevin. Just when we had a new team making it to the big one, 
the Mr. Pejorative Dan Socialist, who insist only five players from each side can be on the ground at the one time, and players are not allowed to cover more than five kilometres in the course of the game. Great analysis, Michelle, great analysis. The pejorative Dan team is certainly playing hardball, no pun intended, by insisting the five players from each side go nowhere near each other and the ball be sanitised whenever a player touches it. That, that could slow the game down a fair bit, Michelle. Very interesting, Kevin. The Mr. Pejorative Dan team is certainly playing hardball, no pun intended, by insisting the five players from each side go nowhere near each other and the ball be sanitised whenever a player touches it. That could slow the game down a fair bit. Spot on as usual, Michelle. Great insight, great insight. But another sensation. The game's in danger of being called off because the pejorative Dan team insists... Spitting on the ground and blowing your nose through one nostril be banned because of this COVID business. Even when going back to take a shot at golf, that would make it impossible for the game to go on. It would be impossible to play under such restrictions, Michelle. Very interesting, Kevin. The game's in danger of being called off because Mr. Pejorative Dan insists spitting on the ground and blowing your nose through one nostril be banned because of this COVID business, even when going back to take a shot at goal, that would make it impossible for the game to go on. It would be impossible to play under such restrictions. Look, we're holding in a we're in a holding pattern here, so let's take it back to the studio until this deadlock is resolved. Okay, thanks, Kevin. We'll get back to you as soon as something happens. And again, thanks to Michelle for her invaluable expert comments. A couple of weeks ago, the billionaire Perridge brothers won the They Would Say That Wouldn't They Award for declaring getting 30 mil of our money for land worth 3 mil, well, valued at 3 mil and leased back to them on a valuation of less than 1 mil as a reasonable price. They would say that, wouldn't they? They're not going to say we ripped off the Commonwealth big time, but this week they were joined in an almost more enthusiastic endorsement of the rip-off, oh, sorry, deal, by Hayseed and Sheepshit Party Supremo, what's his name, who, who said the price was a bargain. In 30 years, we would have paid a lot more, he disclosed, an acute sense of economic literacy. As a result, I'm putting my house up for sale, and by calculating its probable value in 30 years, I'm asking, asking $125 million. Maybe I should ask for more, because the buyer will be getting a real bargain. Huh? Hope I'm not cheating myself. The big worry is, what's his name? I think it's Michael. Michael McMake the Rich Richer. He's so dynamic. Big worry, this financial whiz kid has a say in how the government handles our money. A further worry is, he might be one of the more advanced thinkers. For eons and revved up, whipped up since 1917, the US of the UN of the US of the world has seen the most dangerous threat to liberty, freedom and democracy, the colour red often oozing threateningly under many an innocent bed. So I was a touch bemused when big supremo Donald Trample the Poor told an adoring crowd of unmasked, non-distance deep thinkers there would be a big red wave, best big red wave ever, ever. And I thought, my God, he's picked up a copy of Das Kapital and seen the light. Infrared, presumably, but then the excitement settled down and I realised for some inexplicable reason he meant an unreformed himself. 
And I thought, we'd love a big red wave if only it was a big red wave. Not either four more years of megalomanic narcissistic policy chaos or a return to the normal liberty, freedom and democracy servitude to the real power. Donald would have been encouraged by the overwhelming support in New Zealand for big Supremo Gazeta earned earned support. Given by his own admission, he has done much more than Jacinta to control the China virus. More than anyone ever, ever getting the balance so spot on between the balance sheets of Wall Street and putting lives in the balance under the sheets. Biggest win ever, ever. Jacinta, uh, yes, wasn't it? Who? Who? No, me, me. I will have the biggest win ever, ever. A big red wave. The biggest ever, ever. We can but imagine how many more US of people would have suffered, would have died, but for Donald's unswerving commitment to control the China virus. Well, he told us if it had been left to the nation's number one epidemiologist, millions would have died because Donald said Dr. Anthony Fauci is an idiot, a disaster, biggest idiot ever, ever, biggest disaster ever, ever, who advocated irrational ideas like distancing, masks, contact tracing, even lockdowns, all of which Donald said would have led to the deaths of millions. He didn't explain his hard evidence or reasoning. Did I say reasoning? But he may well have meant the death of millions of dollars. On which some government's selfish, nay worse, destructive insistence on placing human health ahead of economic health. Let's check what's happening at the footy. A stuff all, unfortunately. There's been yet another sensation. The, the caring business class team, through its vice captain Josh Friedem Icebergs, insists the umpires be chosen from an independent panel appointed by the sundry chambers of profits and the pejorative Dan Socialists say they need to think about it, even though he assured Friedem Icebergs there is no bigger supporter of the sundry chambers of profits than his team. So, so we're still at a stalemate, Michelle. Very interesting, Kevin. We're still at a stalemate. Great observation, Michelle. Great observation. So that's it. Back to the studio. Okay, we'll keep monitoring the footy, but it's not looking promising. In the sweet and sour department, the CFMEU Mining Division has attacked the government for its undiplomatic, reckless and sometimes bizarre attacks on China. All very good, except its real objection. They pose a grave threat to coal exports. Oh dear. We are great supporters of trade unionism, but oh dear. Another whom we love to support, and who supports 3CR in this segment to the hilt, Senator Erica Betts on the bosses, has taken the demanding Chinese true blue Aussies, condemn the Chinese communist dictatorship, and swear allegiance to the dear baby Jesus as opposed to the freedom of speech they enjoy in True Blue Aussie. A freedom to condemn the Chinese communist dictatorship, leaving Joseph McCarthy turning in his grave. Last week, we commented on the ACTU agreeing that companies inadvertently underpaying workers would be exempt from civil penalties, meaning 100% of caring employers would be exempt. Well, Finally this week, a truly innovative industrial breakthrough, the IFA, 
Actually, it's not new. It's individual flexibility arrangements, memories of work choices, practiced assiduously at the Witch Bank, which used to be our bank. 15,000 workers giving up incidental conditions like rostered days off, overtime payments, guaranteed pay increases, maximum hours, annual leave loading, and other enterprise agreement entitlements. In return for which, they receive a fabulous few extra dollars in their pay packet. And no doubt the expert financiers at the Witch Bank, which used to be, worked it out so the workers would be so much better off. But unfortunately, they ever so slightly miscalculated, and it turned out the workers were actually worse off. A major shock, we can be sure, to the poor Witch Bank. A mere $53 million miscalculation, $53 million in underpayments, $53 million in inadvertent underpayments. Good morning. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, your community radio station, and we are coming to the end of the show. I caught up with Don Sutherland since we last talked. The budget was announced. Not much good there, but Don is always ready for a fight. This is what he had to say. Well, g'day, Annie, and hello to all of your listeners. It's a while since we've had a chance to chat, and it's so good to be able to do so. Um, yeah, uh, I've continued my activity with the Living Incomes for Everyone campaign and paying attention to all sorts of things that are going on, in, including in other parts of the world. Um, I think there's two big things for us to have a chat about today. Um, one is, I think, uh, understanding the character of the Freudenberg, I'm sorry, Josh Frydenberg's budget um, as a ruling class or a capitalist class uh, budget on steroids and therefore of huge significance uh, for us who, uh, for very good reason, are on the other side. And then the second thing is uh, what that means about uh, for what a a good friend of mine recently called working class politics. So I think if we can have a chat about both the budget and what working class politics might mean in response to it, that would be really good. Well, interestingly enough that you should say it was a, um, uh, the, the characterised the budget in the way you did, one of the things that's most interesting about it is that it... Uh, uh, was dressed up as uh, something that was separate from the actual abysmal situation before COVID. And it was pointed out that the very large debt was already, two-thirds of it, existed before COVID started. Exactly, exactly. And I, uh, just as a matter of interest, I was going back through some of my files where I saved uh, articles from mainstream media and bits and pieces I've written and other other stuff. And lo and behold, just before, uh, just in even in early February, before the real impact of COVID-19 was becoming apparent, there was widespread discussion in the mainstream media about how the economy was tanking and that there was nothing that this government was doing either about the, of any significance about uh, increasing government debt, but also increasing debt overall, including that owed by households and by uh, corporations and other businesses. So that was the sort of tenor of things. That in fact, there was widestream discussion about big problems in the economy 
before COVID-19 is really impacting. Now that all, as you, you're dead right, the budget, the budget pretends that that wasn't happening and uh, including that there was widespread discussion about it. Uh, and mainstream media in the main, there are some honorable exceptions actually, in the main has also chosen to forget that and in that way assist the government's messaging. Yeah. It's all down to COVID. Uh, when you talk about working class, uh, uh, um, a working class fr framework, um, are you particularly interested in that discussion about the mooted changes to IR, industrial relations, which was already on the agenda before COVID, uh, and... Uh, and also the business about uh, jobs that they keep underlining, but which the budget w is not really supporting. Well, um, uh, yes, uh, and I think this is really a really important feature of the ruling class character of the budget itself, and that is it's dovetailing with industrial relations policy and also monetary policy. In other words, all those three dimensions of how a government seeks to manage crises, economic crises, climate crisis, is interdependent. It's not just the budget on its own. It's how the budget dovetails with industrial relations policy. And that has become very apparent and also monetary policy in which the rather hapless and uh, uh, Reserve Bank is expected somehow or other to keep um, interest rates low enough to uh, encourage borrowing for new investment. Um, we can come back to that later. So it's a very ruling class budget. And the, the reaction to that now, I think, is that, uh, and it's sort of captured somewhat in this phrase, working class politics, is that the ingredients for a general working class response are on the table now more, although not entirely visible, but they're not being mixed together or dovetailed in the way in which the government and the corporations, particularly through the major employer organisations, are dovetailing or integrating uh, their strategy. But nevertheless, there are ingredients now emerging. Uh, the uh, from the point of view of working class politics. So maybe we could discuss that a little bit further. I mean, the main point about the uh, the budget itself is that it is throwing literally tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars at employers for a business-led recovery that is not just billions of dollars that ultimately goes to a trillion dollars worth of debt, it also is done in such a way that it enables employers to command and control not just workplaces, but day-to-day -day life. Uh, that's what goes with the billions, the power to command and control in terms of what Frydenberg and Morrison are driving is, is really big for employers, corporations in particular, the bigger ones. And so the trust to manage the billions being thrown to employers is to trust 
that the, that the wage theft model um, it, it didn't happen. It's as though they can be trusted despite a decade now of systemic wage theft in which it has become the business model. We just put that aside and we trust them with these billions of dollars, about 56 to, well, about 60% of what of which comes directly out of the pockets of workers. And then you, you get, you know, there are specific things like this investment allowance. I mean, uh, that is that is territory for rogue businesses at, of all sizes, small ones and big ones. So the small ones that are aspiring to be big, they get to learn to be rogues at a very early stage in their life, practicing to being big ones. That's what that investment allowance does. So that's the sort of the, that's one half of it. That's the ruling class. The other side is the working class politics that comes out of it. Now, when we're talking about politics, we're not talking just about parliamentary politics. We're also talking about movement politics. And the friend of mine who used the phrase working class politics did so in the context of saying to me, this is a union leader, actually, a national secretary of a union, and I'm not at liberty to say who it is, but um, the point he was making was very, very important. He says that as important as union politics is, that is more than just parliamentary, in other words, focused on helping the ALP to win an election, but is movement-based and it's industrial, has an industrial character. And then he said that we've also got to make it working-class politics, broader even than just unions. And... Uh, he was thinking aloud about how to develop a much, much stronger alliances between understanding the working class as being a lot more than just waged workers. And I think that's a terrific direction for a union leader to take not just his own union, but other unions together in that direction. That leads into something very important, which is the cultural fabric that's being undermined by the uh, LNP government federally. Uh, it, it displays it's it's displayed in full glory in the budget, as the man said. This this is all about our values, and uh, he said it at the beginning of his speech. And um, there's a couple of things that are real standouts. The business about uh, uh, the way the universities are being um, handled, the future uh, funding for the universities, uh, but also, uh, obviously, the reintroducing of the master-slave arrangements uh, where the rhetoric is that everybody should be happy to have a job, uh, whatever sort of job it is, that sort of stuff. That they, And also, of course, the uh, privatisation uh, through the uh, wage cap for the uh, public service, which is... Uh, and the uh, outsourcing of Centrelink to under-trained, under-resourced and unaccountable... Uh, um, uh, private providers, the use of um, uh, labour hire, which is rife throughout the entire economy. Yes, well, I think um, uh, there's uh, there's two points there. Firstly, what the government is doing with all of those things that you mentioned 
is in a way essential because of the problems that the capitalist class has. So the capitalist class is not just the first. The first part of the story is that the capitalist class is making is increasing its profits. So uh, profit shares are going up and higher in general. I mean, there's the odd six months or three months where it flattens or goes down a bit, but the overall trend is significantly high. The second thing is that there is a big question mark over how much profit they're making related to the investment they put in. And that is, is a con the more investment they put in, physical investment for more productive work that generates, that it in the end goes to profits, uh, the, the, there is downward pressure on that relationship between uh, profits and investment. So they have to reverse that some way. And the only way, the most important way, is to increase the rate of exploitation of workers and then also other parts of the working class, those who are unemployed and going on to those who, for other reasons, are dependent on some form of social welfare payment from the government. So they have to impoverish. Why do they have to impoverish? They have to impoverish because it makes workers who are in wage work more disciplined and uh, more difficult for them to wage effective struggle to improve wages and conditions. So there is this sort of these inherent contradictions that they have to solve. And the only way they can do it is by, uh, to put it crudely, and it's a little bit more to it than this, but to put it crudely, to make workers and their families and communities pay. Now, then you come to the second thing, and that is your point about how it is, you know, it seeks to disrupt working class culture. And that's very true, but interestingly, and so importantly, is that how there are, there is resistance fighting back, not just through the most visible and relatively more powerful working class organisations like unions, and that's taking into account that they're less powerful than they used to be, of course, but also that uh, there are these other organisations that I think are rather inspiring. And I, I talk specifically here about organisations like Fairgo for Pensioners, and also the standout one for me at the moment because of what it's doing in educating us about the, the real experience of the working class beyond those people who are in wage work, and that's the No Cashless Welfare Debit Card community, which is a very big community now in Australia. And I've noticed that you've been talking about that particular campaign uh, a bit yourself, and the more the better because... Union leaders and union activists at all levels, and I don't just mean national secretaries or state secretaries and so on, presidents and people of unions, but those who lead workers as unionists at all levels need to understand what a disgrace and an insult and a denial of basic human rights, what the government is up to with the No Cashless Welfare Debit Card and the associated mutual obligations regime put into the hands of private corporations to make profit out of unemployment. They, this is the sort of, the fact that there is really good 
resistance. Still with a long way to go to be really powerful, really good resistance is a terrific thing that we should be. This is what working class politics is all about. The more powerful organisations like unions joining together and supporting and building common ground and common struggles with those other parts of the working class. This is, I think, the big moment we are in. Are we willing to start that sort of a movement? Last week on Solidarity Breakfast, uh, I was able to play a piece from Baruz Barani, who uh, was talking for the at a, uh, a lecture for at uh, University of Tasmania, and he was talking about exactly the same thing in a sense. What he was saying that. Um, People should stand up and uh, fight because uh, it's a movement. He was using exactly the same terms. And the person who was talking to him said, yes, it's surprising that we don't feel that we could, we should uh, basically fight to win, that we're, we're coward. Uh, yeah, it was exactly the same kind of... It, it's a realisation that people... We aren't all in this together in, on the same level. Well, the, I think he's nailed it there in a very important way because the next 12 months we face, we who are interested in fighting back, face a huge decision. Do we continue to fight back on the basis of hope or do we continue to fight back that moves to another level, the level of movement determination? In other words, moving away from institutional responses to the sort of stuff we see in the budget and in the industrial relations laws that Porter will attempt to reintroduce. Do we move away from just polite negotiation into building a movement that is collectively and consciously uh, saying uh, hope is always useful but we go, we're further than that we are going to be determined and that determination is going to carry us for at least a number of years and it's going to get even stronger and we see I think two good examples of that sort of movement that is loading itself up with higher levels of determination and this is what in a sense the working class politics has got to latch on to and especially the union dimension of working class politics has got to latch onto. And that is found in the First Nations struggles on two fronts, firstly related to the cashless welfare debit card, and then secondly in regard to the Uluru Statement, that you see there an understanding of strategy that stretches beyond the next three months and a deter level of determination about it. That is much higher. Well, well, what you're talking about, Don, is that uh, these are there's a there's a line in the sand because the cashless welfare card in particular is an example of how this is just not on. That that system is uh, uh, to use a a fabulous term used by union or working men and women a disgrace. Yes, it is a disgrace. And however, it's not on, if you don't know, it's not on only if you know about it. And most, most waged workers don't know about it, although that is going to begin to change as a new generation of unemployed who have been made unemployed in this year, during this year, 
will continue to be unemployed or significantly underemployed or probably re-employed in less skilled and lower paid jobs, which is, of course, the Morrison recipe. Yeah, and there's no reason to have a middle a private organisation creaming off money that is actually uh, social security uh, to hand out uh, this uh, uh, social security. There is no reason to have a private organisation doing this. It's, a, it's an outrage. So this is where I disagree. I think there is every reason to do it because it is perfectly consistent with the logic of the system, and that is whatever commodity you can see or whatever item you can see, whatever product or service you can see that might be profitable, then it is logical that it should be either privatised or corporatised or some mix of the two. It's not about being uh, economically rational. It's about uh, profits for uh, uh, mates, I guess you'd call it. Well, it's private corporations. Yeah, yeah, but it's entirely logic that a government of the LNP character and regrettably with some residue of it or more than residue in the ALP itself that says that it's okay to treat people's unemployment benefit as uh, as a commodity that they can make a profit from. That is completely logical with the system that we live in. Another reason why you shouldn't vote LMP. Well, Mm. more than that, another reason why you should stop just complaining about the situation and get active and involved. If you don't know how to do that, start learning. Everyone is capable of it. Perhaps we finish off just two events that um, relate to all of this. Um, The... um, Uh, The ACT is having its, I think it's either every two or three years, its um, uh, next organising conference, which I think is going to be in virtual format from November the 16th to the 20th. Now, uh, I'm not sure how much of it will be public. The information about it is only being drip-fed in small quantities at the moment, and you have to sort of be in a, a sort of one of the... Closer to, not close to, but, you know, sort of uh, half connected to the circles that are organising it to know that it's being drip-fed even. But um, it's happening 16th to 20th. And there, usually there are several hundred union officials and delegates union, that is working unionists who are delegates participate in that. And that's a very big event. And it's an opportunity to break out of institutional politics into genuine movement-based working-class politics. The second event, of course, is that um, about right now, 100 years ago, was was a small group of people, uh, Australians, who formed the Communist Party of Australia. And it went through a rather dramatic history and made, and which overall, the Communist Party of Australia made huge contributions to struggles around democratic rights uh, in solidarity, often leading the way in solidarity uh, with First Nations struggles. And of course, economic struggles, particularly in unions. Um, so that hundredth anniversary is being celebrated in several different ways. I know that tomorrow, the uh, South Australian Study for the, the Society for the Study of Labor History has got a conference on, uh, and uh, then also there is going, at the Search Foundation website, your listeners can see details of events happening around October the 30th 
and then next week they ha are having a film night, which is showing the wonderful documentary called Red Matildas, yep. which is the story of three um, uh, three Communist Party women and their struggles and the reasons why they became active in the party, their role in the in the anti-war movements and so on, but also dealing with the depression. Uh, so and you know how. Uh, how to fight against unemployment and so on. So it's a terrific doco. And uh, that'll be, you can get the details at the Search Foundation Facebook page and webpage. Good, eh? All right, thanks very much, Don. Well, that's it for Solidarity Breakfast today. We heard about the fight for the Barker Darling River, the federal government's move to increase army use domestically, the cashless welfare card, and the general roundup from Kevin and Don. Talk to you next week. Keep safe. Cheers from Annie. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night Alive as you and me Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead I never died, says he I never died, says he In Salt Lake City Joe says I am standing by my side They framed you on a murder charge Says Joe, I never died Says Joe, I never died The copper bosses, they shot you, Joe They filled you full of lead Takes more than guns to kill a man, says Joe, and I ain't dead, says Joe, and I ain't dead. I'm standing there as big as life and smiling. With his eyes Says Joe What they forgot to kill Went on to organize Went on to organize In San Diego Up to Maine In every mine and mill Where working men Defend their rights there you'll find Joe Hill It's there you'll find Joe Hill I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night Alive as you and me Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead I never died, says he I never died, says he You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.